Oh my god. Okay, so the bonus happy hour we just did was on fan fiction and fan edits and stuff. Let's fucking go, bro. And uh, at the end of it, I mentioned that I wrote fan fiction when I was a kid. <laughs> of what? R- Resident <laughs> Evil. He showed it to me. You could read it. My he couldn't write under Charles Perks because I didn't want Capcom to come after me. <laughs> so I had a, I had my alias, which was Carlos Valentine. So cool. I know. And uh, and then after when I was editing it, I was like, I should like look it up just to make sure. See, you, it's still there. Well, just to make sure you can't find it. Uh, really, it was the opposite of it's still there. Like, please don't be here. But of it's course, still there. Go to fanfiction.net and look up Carlos Valentine, and you'll find this like God fucking blessed. Like at first, I was embarrassed, like looking at it because it's just terrible. The uh, writing in those games, you were almost a Jill sandwich. Like, you, <laughs> yeah. the watermark oh, you were comparing to. I guess yeah, you're right. The video game writing isn't exactly fucking Shakespeare. <laughs> but uh, but then I like, realized, like, okay, I wrote this in 2002, like 24 years ago. Wow. You know? Wait, not, math? Not, math? No. No. Chad, is that real? I'm sorry. That's <laughs> no, not real. No, it's 22 years ago. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, it's 13 chapters. It's a finished story. Isn't that That's... crazy? When I was twelve. That's pretty cool. Do you want to read? Do you want to hear the last chapter? Yes. Or, or the last. Give me some lines of, of chapter eleven. Absolutely. She was closest to the beast, and she was basically unarmed. I chuckled and said to Kelly, "Dumb bitch is finally gonna get what she deserves." She smiled and took off running toward the chopper. We ran side by side to the helicopter. This was the longest night of my life, but it wasn't over yet. And then, and, and then, awesome. How old were you? Like 12? 12, yeah. And, and that's amazing. The, the next chapter is called Truth Revealed. And that's where, you know. That's Turns out the Umbrella Corporation was McDonald's. They were. <laughs> Bad cow disease. All right, okay. Let me pull up our notes for the show. <laughs> Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive on a different topic each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. And I think we have a really special episode ahead of us today. To set things up, I'd first like to talk about one of the greatest joys of being a fan of cult movies, and that is the joy of discovery. Usually it starts, or at least in my case, it started with Night of the Living Dead, This little zombie movie morality tale led me, obviously, to Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, which then led me to Return of the Living Dead, anything with dead in the title, really. Then came Fulci's Zombie, which led me to The Beyond and Gates of Hell, which led me to Italian horror, led me to spaghetti westerns and Eurocrime. Eurocrime led me to exploitation films, and you see how easy it is to get from Night of the Living Dead to Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. It's a journey, one that I am very much still on and hope anyone listening to this show is still on too. Now, that leads us to the topic for today. Sometimes the very dichotomy of this journey gets inverted. You start with the cult subgenre and it leads you to a more recognizable, albeit non-mainstream place. The way I got into Hong Kong cinema was through Category 3 movies. I mean, don't get me wrong, I I had seen Shaw Brothers stuff and Jackie Chan and I love John Woo, but it wasn't until I saw a soaking wet Anthony Wong butcher an entire family (laughs) in the untold story that I was was officially hooked and I I started digging. I learned everyone's names, uh, even the actors who were really the leads, and I watched every Hong Kong movie I could get my hands on. I'd watch a mainstream Hong Kong movie like In the Mood for Love, 
and treat it with the same mind I would treat pituitary hunter or red to kill. So today, Jesus, sorry for all of that crap. Today, we are going to focus our conversation on another side of Hong Kong cinema that we as cult movie aficionados sometimes overlook while discussing the cinema we love. And joining us for this discussion is one of our dearest, dearest friends, the beautiful, enigmatic, and absolutely brilliant Bobby. Welcome to the show, Bobby. Oh, well, thank you for having me. There have been many times over the years when I thought I knew Hong Kong cinema, and then Bobby would come over and show me a movie or three and just completely humble me and remind me that I don't really know shit and I've barely even scratched the surface. She's been a good friend of both me and Sam, and it's just a real honor. We're so glad to finally have you on the show. I also very much appreciate having an ally in my corner where this particular topic is concerned. So some of our listeners may know that Charles does not like art house, new wave movies a lot of the time, as I'm sure many of our listeners also don't. Because, no. Well, I think, I'm in the minority. People like... No, but I think there are a lot of people who are just more comfortable with genre cinema, because like you, that's how they got into cinema. And I think there is kind of a... A stigma that certain fans have around, oh, I don't want to watch this boring, stuffy art house movie. And so today we're going to talk about the great Patrick Tam, who I think is such an important example of how you can have a director who works in genre cinema and does really interesting stuff. And we're going to talk about uh, one of his films, Love Massacre, in that regard. But he's also someone who got hired to do more mainstream things. He also was an art house director and an important member of the Hong Kong New Wave. And so I think through discussing his career and how it sort of led to the work of people like Wong Kar Wai, I think it's just he, he's such like a great locus point where a lot of those different things meet, especially in Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, it also helps that he's only made like five or six movies or something, that it's like... Ten? How many movies? Between 1980 and 1989, seven theatrical films, and then then one in 2006, and a piece in an anthology movie just a couple years ago, 2020. You can easily watch all this guy's movies in a week if you wanted to, or in a day if you wanted to, really. I guess, what is the Hong Kong new wave how is it different from other new waves? And uh, this is a question that I should be asking myself, but I'm going to ask you, uh, why do I like it? Why is this the new wave that I like? Well, that's a really good question. Yeah, I think that understanding the milieu of where that new cinema arose from is really important in answering that. And that's also what makes it different than like the French new wave or the Japanese new wave. It's, it feels like its own beast, Yeah, so a lot of the generation of directors that we would become familiar with were making very popular films in the 80s and 90s that we would recognize over here. Like Like Troy Hark. Troy Hark, exactly. For the most part, it's a generation of people born right after the end of World War II, so like 45, 49, 50s. Um, Which is funny because that's also French New Wave, German New Wave. It's like they're all kind of born. Yeah, I and I think we'll get into this later, but I think that the way that people formed like local cultural identities is a lot different after something like a devastating world war. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And especially specifically in Hong Kong, there was a lot of shit going on, which we'll get into. But um, 
Wait, so was the question, why should you care? Well, the, the, the real question is, what is the Hong Kong new wave and what separates it from the other new waves? And I assume that is going to answer part three, which is, why do I like it? Well, I think it's like you just brought up the point that there was a lot of shit going on globally in the 20 years after World War II ended, but I think it was different in Hong Kong because they were dealing with all of these occupations basically around the time of World War II and after with British rule. But I think it led to some really interesting cultural developments, like the way that something like Wuja had these sorts of like waves where it's popular in the 30s and 40s and then kind of falls out of favor and just like the intersection of different cultures in one city yeah i think shaped hong kong films and the hong kong new wave in a way that is not true of something like the french new wave it's not like we're dealing with this big foreign influence yeah no i would totally agree with that i always kind of saw the fact that there were filmmakers who had to deal with the fact they were living under British occupation, basically, and that the only alternative to that was then a almost perceived Chinese occupation from the mainland with, you know, the, the Cultural Revolution. So there were these two competing overlords breathing down their necks, and there was always these... But you know, who are t- from two very, like, very different poles... Where it's, you know, you have the Chinese communists in mainland China, and then you have the British colonial occupiers. So it's just, it's such a fascinating clash in a weird way. I think that that combination of somewhat local national influences and international influences culturally from Western export cinema and things like photo magazines, music. Yeah, it, it makes sense that the cinema of the Hong Kong New Wave is more accessible than a lot of yeah. things like the French New Wave or whatever. Not well, it's, only because... it's like it wants to be more, you know, as someone who has just done an entire series <laughs> all last year on Godard's films, he can be kind of reactionary, at times seem a little bit edgelordy, but I think it's because it's he's his, re, like he and a lot of the other young new wave directors were reacting against what they saw as the cinema of quality, which is this sort of, you know, studio system, predictable topics, everything kind of looks the same. None of it is shot on location. It's all on these elaborate sets. And so they're reacting against that and they want to make intentionally difficult experimental cinema, but that's not what's going on in Hong Kong at all. Right. So what's the the era where the Hong Kong new wave is kind of considered in its heyday? That's a really great question. Yeah, so that's a question that is answered differently depending on what language you speak, essentially, yeah. because um, the technological, cultural, economic milieu that this stuff came out of was something that was set in motion immediately in the post-war period, where the way that the British colonial government managed the Hong Kong society had to change partially because of the huge amount of refugees coming from mainland China in various waves, fleeing either the CPC takeover, which makes that sound ominous, but... (laughs) uh, but So people fleeing the Japanese occupation, then the KMT government losing and dipping to Taiwan, and then things like the Cultural Revolution and yada, yada, yada. So you have tons and tons of people emigrating 
from mainland China to Hong Kong, combined with the beginnings of international investment after World War II, which because of the embargo on China, a bunch of the ports that were huge in Southeast Asia or in Asia in general were no longer points where things would flow in and out. So Hong Kong as a port became way more important after World War II, both for China, Britain, uh, the U.S., and, and Japan, by extension. Yeah, exactly. Well, who were US occupied. By, yeah, yeah that, that's why I said by extension. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also um, yeah. dealing with their own occupation. It, was, it seemed kind of like Hong Kong was a gateway for almost all of the black market goods that would go yes. into mainland China were going through Hong Kong. Yes. And so on an illicit level, that was something that was happening throughout those decades. And then in the early 70s, late 70s, when China was flung open, that became much more of a... a a factor in yeah. economic development. So the combination of industrialization in Hong Kong and the huge mass of refugees and basically the terrible fucking conditions that people were living in evolving into the social movements of the 60s and 70s, which you guys have talked about a bit in the Dangerous Encounters episode. Bombs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some I think, fake ones too. Yeah. yeah. 1967. Fake ones, real ones, all the bombs. I, when, I always kind of think that new wave filmmakers, because a lot of them are, are young when they're making their movies and they're kind of making those movies in the 80s, at least the ones that I always watch. Yeah, right? well, like, I think it starts in like the late 70s in earnest, so, but mostly 80s, right? Yeah, um, is is there a movie that's kind of considered the kickoff? Because like in my mind, it's I, Dangerous Encounters, but I don't really know. So there's a ton of things you can point to, and the '67 riots and the social movements that developed concurrent with that and after that are a really good capstone that you can point to. Like there was stuff that was happening obviously in the '50s and '60s that led to that. It didn't just happen overnight, but. Coincidentally, 1967 was also the year that TVB uh, opened shop, which was the first free over-the-air television studio, which owned by the Shaw brothers, by the way. Wow. Um, or was, one of them in that, particular. Was that a Mona Shaw? Uh, she um, she came along later. Yeah, she, I believe, was working there and, and hooking up with the Shaw brother that she hooked up with uh, around yeah. that time, but I don't think that she wow. necessarily has. And then, and then she became a boss later. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. in the same year that Hong Kong is going through these huge well, I mean, everywhere's going through huge changes. Yeah, in 67, yes. 68. But it's a good time internationally yeah. for everyone. Yeah, hey, man. Yeah, let's but, have that again for 2024, please. We'll see. <laughs> uh, we'll see if you're good. But I think, it, I mean, knowing that TVB started run by the Shaw brothers in the same year that all these huge labor uprisings were going on in Hong Kong, Macau just, you know... Kicked out the fucking Portuguese. They kicked the Portuguese kind out. Good for them. Totally. And and now Hong Kong is kind of having their moment where they can potentially do that. And there's bombs... Well, the I think it was the bombing campaign that happened just kind of spun out of control and it just terrorized the whole city. So all of the, like support that they had in not just the streets but just the, the general support you'll be in like oh yeah i'm glad you're out there you know I, I want hong kong to be you know not ruled by the british started to like change their tune when they were afraid of getting blown up when they would go outside so just this like element of fear but also the birth of tv being on in your house with these like stations playing things that are catered to your interests and the filmmakers that were getting involved with that process also seeing what's going on in the world around them. I mean, like that uh, to me explains the new wave 
so much in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, it may be a little, you know, reductive because there's so much more going on, of course, but... Sure, like but that, we could we could do yes. an entire podcast just devoted. Of course, to... of course. And, but, but I think that setting up Patrick Tam, like it makes you kind of see his work so much more clearly. Knowing that, I mean, did did he go through the studio or, or TVB? Is that? Yep. Yeah. So I think that's what makes it so different than something like the French New Wave or the Czech New Wave, and makes it more kind of like. New German cinema, which it's just the fucking German new wave. I don't know why they needed to have their own separate name. But a lot of them started off working in television and working in things like genre films and more mainstream productions. So they're just coming at it with a different attitude. And you could, if you wanted to use the sort of stuffy academic film language, talk about this difference between being an auteur and being a journeyman and how... A lot of the Hong Kong New Wave, like those rules don't apply because they all started as journeyman directors. Yeah, that's what's so nice about them is that, I mean, that's what really attracted me to doing this episode and doing this topic and and watching more of Patrick Tam's movies is that he's making genre films. Not always. There's definitely some exceptions in his filmography, but he's, he's making movies that appeal to me. I mean, we're going to get into this later. I'm sorry to jump ahead. But like My Heart is at Eternal Rose, for example, I had no idea that was going to be a heroic bloodshed Yeah, movie. me neither. I straight I up no thought it was fucking romantic idea. melodrama. I just <laughs> thought it was going to be just a romantic melodrama. I thought we were going to get some fucking colors. And then Mondoc gets fucking blasted in the first reel. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and the whole time, like I'm like, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, and But also, it never loses... This like the melodrama core, yes, this, which this. I love so much. I think this is also why it reminds me so much of German new wave directors like Fassbender, who I think is a little bit more accessible because he had that melodrama core in so many of his films, but like Patrick Tam, had this really unique sense of style and used genre themes often as a way to explore these like uncomfortable social issues and like gender roles and you know okay so all the good stuff patrick tam is coming up in tvb if i can set the stage for that a little bit just going back to the question of when the new wave started again that is going to be different depending on what you have access to a lot of the work that he and other directors did in the 70s is not accessible for english language speaking audiences He also joined TVB in 1967, not as a director, but got to that point um, by the mid-70s. I think you were saying he did some like assistant directing work. Yes. Um, So one of the technological changes that made a really vibrant Cantonese audiovisual media possible in the early 70s is just starting to use 16 millimeter cameras as opposed to studio TV cameras where you are stuck in one location. Um, He was like a second unit director for some other TV programs where they would give him a camera and he would be able to shoot on the street. And Mandarin language cinema, like theatrically, was incredibly dominant in the late 60s into the early 70s. 
to the point where there were zero Cantonese language films produced in 1972. Is that, Whoa. are we talking about Shaw Brothers pretty much? In Hong Kong, there were zero. So yes, um, Shaw Brothers was the dominant force and then Golden Harvest, when that opened up, gave them some competition, which is part of why um, the Shaw Brothers wanted to invest in television because they just fucking hated competing with people. They really did. They had such a stranglehold on the industry. And part of the reason why... <laughs> You, you had this sort of uh, recession of Mandarin language cinema in the late 70s into the early 80s, which sets the stage for the full-on Cantonese New Wave cinema, or Hong Kong New Wave cinema, was most of the immigrants to Hong Kong during that period were from southern China, which UA dialect, Cantonese-speaking people. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of the veteran staff of the Shaw Brothers were Shanghainese transplants, the Shaw Brothers themselves. Yeah, they... Which I think Mandarin okay. or Shanghainese, obviously. Yeah, um, I th and I think if anyone doesn't know this, they started their studio in Shanghai in the twenties yes. as a family studio, and eventually moved it to Hong Kong in what the late thirties. Yeah, they started moving stuff around, and then when the Japanese came knocking, they were like, "Fuck See this you shit!" Later, yeah, Shanghai. let's grab our shit and run. <laughs> yeah. So, because of the dominance of Mandarin language cinema in the early seventies, as I said. Zero fucking Cantonese movies in 72, one Which in 1973. Is so crazy. The one Cantonese movie in 1973, it's really worth a watch. Chor Yuan, House of 72 Tenants. Of course. Because it's the only Cantonese movie that won the fucking Golden Horse Award in Taiwan yeah. that year. Which is super <laughs> fucking cool. swept that year. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the senior citizens who got all the directing jobs in, and also I should say, like, there was a pretty vibrant. Cantonese language cinema in the 50s and 60s, but because of the production values that the Shaw brothers were able to leverage and Golden Harvest later, and the fact that Mandarin was a lot easier to export, like the export market was huge in that period where like sending movies to Indonesia, Singapore, Which Taiwan. was the obsession of the Shaw brothers was let's find an international market starting in... East Asia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, exactly. So they were overextending themselves, frankly, because they couldn't really get more people to replace the guys who were aging out. And Well, and then when they would have younger people come along, they would exploit them. Oh, absolutely. So you have like a Jimmy Wang Yu situation yeah. where he's like, fuck, fuck off, this. I'm going to go to another studio. Yeah, exactly. And that period where, again, Cantonese language cinema was basically dead, TV production swept in and filled that void for people. And I have here in 1972... 72% of households in Hong Kong had a fucking TV, which from 1968 is up 60%. Whoa. Um, so it's several hundred thousand more fucking TV so sets. So somebody figured out how to make TVs way cheaper in the mid-60s, yeah. which also you see in the U.S. It's also the changing shape of the Hong Kong economy after the 60s. Like part of the reason for the 67 riots, besides the naked colonial exploitation going on, was like... There were people making a shitload of fucking money, and it was not anyone doing any work. Like, you were wow, living no, off of... Wow, no parallels yeah. to today at all. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> can't believe this. No, that sounds terrible. <laughs> so basically, like, with things like uh, public housing, education, access, and recognizing that they could... People would start making fucking bombs again if they didn't improve the conditions that people were living there. The average Hong Kong worker got a lot more of that increased uh, 
What's yeah, it's it's it? kind of like it happens a decade earlier in the U.S. where it's like suddenly there's this booming middle class because there's this shift. I mean, we didn't have to deal with colonialism in the same way. Right. But I think because when you have working class and middle class people suddenly making more money, then they can afford things like TVs. So Patrick Tam. Sure. So uh, Patrick Tam, he, before he started working at a TV studio, this also is important for understanding the influences on him and other new wave directors. They had access to things like French new wave movies and yep. you know international cinema, as as you would call it, I guess. But um, he wrote for like film weekly magazines, which were starting to get circulated, and like things like film clubs were starting to form. In which this is such another classic yeah. new wave <laughs> Critic- director yeah. thing. You start as a film critic first. So by like 1973, 1975, he had been promoted from second unit director and various odd jobs to person full on directing TV specials. And one of the early ones he did for sort of an anthology series where it was just like, here's a bunch of stories about random people. Like it's, it's literally called like superstar specials, I think, which very funny title. But so random staff would make different episodes. The one that he made won an award in New York City. He, he was shipped out to study film on TVB's Dime wait, in 1975. Wait, he made a fucking TV show that won an award in New York? It was the first, at least Hong Kong possibly, TV program to win any award internationally. They sent him to San Francisco to study. And That's awesome. while he was in the US, he took a trip to New York, went to that film festival, got an award. Wow. That's so nice. Yeah, I had no idea. I always kind of assumed that he was just like a rich guy who went to San Francisco and like studied with a bunch of Americans and then like brought the uh, the genius of America back to <laughs> back to Hong Kong. But obviously not. It's yeah, it's nice that and I think that's another thing for Choi Hark as well that really kind of sets their work apart is you can tell that there's like they studied in the US, they watched a lot right. more international films. Yeah, and that, that was true of basically the group of people who came up specifically through TVB, but also from the other television stations that were in operation around that time. So more or less, he made a bunch of really cool programs. They confronted issues of class, gender, stuff like that. Basically, like acknowledging the actual extant Hong Kong society as opposed to fluff. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious if his TV work is also as genre-centric. I mean, there's a part of me that assumes that it must be only because I know American TV, it's like, oh, you have to have a certain genre formula or people are going to tune out. But maybe it's just so it's just different in like a different culture. I don't know. I mean, think about mainstream American TV. It's not, it's mostly just sitcoms. But like, imagine having like an auteur working in that medium. They would still need to hit on the like, the beats that uh, click with a mass TV audience. Yeah, so I can answer that. He did a bunch of episodes for a TV program called CID, which was literally just a cop procedural show. Early appearances by like Simon Yam and some really interesting stuff like referential to some of the more influential uh, Cantonese cinema from the 50s and 60s, Patrick Lung Kong. Uh, There's an episode of CID called Teddy Girls, which is a relatively famous film from 1966, 1969, directed by the same guy who did uh, Story of a Discharged Prisoner. But the TV episode is just about two Teddy girls fleeing from the police for 25 minutes, which getting to film that on the street with 16 cameras is a lot more interesting than 
a variety show, which was sort of the staple of the network. So uh, people loved and hated his stuff. It seems like it was very polarizing reading reviews of it because it was, again, very confrontational of contemporary issues like the treatment of women and commercialism, materiality. When, what was his first film? Is, is it The Sword? Yep, 1980. Uh, is that Golden Harvest or Shaw Brothers? I think, I think it's Shaw, it's... but I could be mistaken. I, I know Sherry, Sherry is, Shaw. is Shaw Brothers. Yeah, I think it's Golden Harvest. So I that was th- like his big is. studio movie, essentially. So I, uh, I did not watch that. So I did a funny thing. I do this a lot where I was like, oh, yeah, Patrick Tam, we can watch all his fucking movies in a week. No problem. There's not that many of them. And then the more I watched, the more that I loved him. And I started loving these movies. Got to save then, them. Yeah. yeah. And then, then they went into my save category where I'm like, oh, shit. Like, he's got a fucking, like, wuja fucking kung fu, like, yeah, uh, we, we need you to know, watch Shaw brothers Z kind of feeling movie. That's like, oh, that's like a birthday movie, you know? That's a fucking... You know, when special we're special occasion early, movie. when I'm like really <laughs> depressed, it's like, oh, hey, we got we got one here. We got, you know, a bullet in the chamber that'll uh, not kill you. <laughs> it's one of those life saving bullets in the chamber. A life saving bullet. Yeah, it's, it's put in my head gun. and fire. Well, it's also like uh, Nomad, one of the movies he made also early in the 80s, is actually showing next week in a restoration yeah. so yes. i was We're like okay that off. we yeah. can't yeah. watch we'll nomad watch we have but to go see this restoration i guess the the, the question that i want to ask is I, I assume you've seen the sword yep is it like his other movies it's fucking lit dude so the way i would describe it is it's not exactly as visually striking as some of his other films just in terms of like he didn't just slap a blue fucking gel you know there's not as many neon How lights dare. yeah in a period film but um i think it I don't know if betrays is the right word, but it it has like his formal rigor. And I don't know if I can necessarily credit with him because I don't think he has a writing credit on it, but a concern for characters that is a little more deep or delicate than some of the more hit you over the head with a brick wish of films from the time. But also I would say the ending action sequence is fucking epic. It's um, the action director was the gentleman who directed a Chinese ghost story to the death. Ching Su Tung. Yes, thank you. I mean, he's yeah, the greatest. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. You're and that's, so um, to watch that's something else I'd, I'd probably like to speak to. The way that you can look at the credits for any of the fucking movies that he directed and see like 15 names who would go on or concurrent with him were making some really incredible, you know, entries in genre film, entries in sort of the art house festival cinema. That's what I love American. about Hong Kong. It's like they all just they almost erase that idea of journeyman director because it's like everybody wears so many different hats. Yeah. And it seems like it's not a big problem for one person to write somebody else's movie and someone else to direct it. Yeah, you don't get pigeonholed into being like, okay, I'm the writer. I'm only directing. I refuse to write or produce. I guess if you were to to give someone, hey, you got to watch one Patrick Tam movie... What's the movie that you would say is like his calling card? Is the one that kind of like sums up what you're gonna get? At? I mean, that's a that's a tough question, but like um, for someone of of our mutual disposition, I would say My Heart Is Out of Eternal Rose makes the most sense because it has a lot of people that we already like. It's visually very striking, and people get shot a lot in it. I mean, Gordon Liu. I I do think it's important to say for anyone who doesn't already know this that if you only know of the Hong Kong new wave through Wong Kar Wai, who came a little bit later, 
a lot of his films look the way they do because they were shot by this guy named Christopher Doyle. Christopher Doyle also shot some of Patrick Tam's early films, and they have a very similar look. Is Christopher Doyle a traditional Mandarin name? Christopher Doyle is a white guy. Christopher Doyle, (laughs) if you're ever bored... Check out some contemporary interviews with him because he's been coasting off that one car white money for ever, forever. So he's just like drunk as shit, wearing like really ridiculous, like tech streetwear fashion, slurring through interviews, but still making some pretty salient points about, you know, his work and the state of the industry and stuff. Wait, is he the fucking asshole that does that slow motion shit? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. I So I wanted to ask you. <laughs> you know what okay. I'm fucking talking about, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. So in... Love Massacre, which is the first movie that we really want to discuss in depth. He does have some of that weird fake slow-mo where it's like it yeah, just... Yeah, what is that shit? It drives me nuts. Like, yes. listen, I love these movies. Don't get me wrong. Like, I fucking love them. I love the aesthetics, the vibes. But whenever that slow-mo shit... Like, what even is it? It's not even slow motion. Well, it's yeah, like... so I don't, I don't hate it. I actually kind of like it, except for when Wong Kar Wai uses it as a cudgel to beat you over the head with. But you are more technically familiar. So please tell us what the hell that's called. It's called step printing. It's, I think it's fucking awesome. It's a tool like anything else where it can be used yeah. to disastrous effect or... <laughs> You know, kind of chill. But so what it is, as opposed to a high FPS camera that they then project at 24 frames a second, which is real slow motion, it's just uh, in the development process, printing the same frame X number of times. So it's on screen for longer, kind of ruining the persistence of vision phenomena. Gotcha. Uh, So it's like instead of 24 frames a second composed of 24 different images, it could be 24 frames a second composed of 12 different images. So everything hangs on the screen. So it sort of feels like it's slid rather than actual slow-mo. Chunky. Yes. That That is a very good way to describe it. But that also, I think, is a good entryway into Love Massacre, which is such... Like, I to a certain extent agree that my heart is that eternal rose would be a good starting point for a lot of people with his work. Yeah. But for like our dirt ball fucking listeners. It might be oh yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. What am I talking about? Yeah. yeah. He steps yeah. on a bunch of chicks heads. Well, oh my it's, God. It's, it's so, uh, I think, but it's so like, it's like an art house film. It's a romantic melodrama and it's a fucking slasher movie. Yeah. And but what's, <laughs> what's amazing though, is that even when it's a disgusting slasher movie, like piling up fucking bot, like it's nasty. Like it, it does shit that like I had to stop and rewind and watch that again because the first time, like, you know, I cheered and I scared the cat and then I had like, I got distracted and you know, we got to see that head explode. I mean, and but the thing is, is that when it's doing this not so but so fucking crazy noise, it never loses its artful proclivities. It's so you know, beautiful. it's always beautiful. And the only version that I don't know that exists. I mean, we first watched it. You showed it to us. This like fuzzy, you super know, faded, super wrong color but grading. Yeah, VHS still out, still yes, yeah, yeah, this like washed out VHS tape. And then recently in the last year, someone uploaded a Laserdisc version of it. And I mean, it's like a step up for sure. But that version's I, also uncut. So you see a lot more. Oh, women's it's, uncut. Yeah. it's extremely uncut. I loved it the first time. But like this time, it really like hit me just how far it goes. But what's insane is that it's still kind of washed out. The, the edges are cut off. It's in like full screen, you know, and you can tell the way it's shot like. 
there's more going on on the other sides. I can tell that it's not shot in, you know, four by three, but it's still gorgeous. It, it never, it still like stuns me, even though I'm watching what is a truncated version of the film. That's how you know it's really got the juice. Yeah. But before we get further into the visual world and gushing over it, could you give us a brief plot synopsis so people know what the hell we're talking oh, about? Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, good I fucking could luck. Yeah, um, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is one of the movies that's a little less concerned with uh, things like the plot. Sort of how in, in <laughs> My Heart is Out of Channel Rose... Kenny B disappears and becomes a badass hitman off screen and then comes back. It's more about later. vibes with yeah. a lot of his movies. <laughs> There's, so an audience more familiar with some of the stars would view, especially the first half through the lens of these super popular Taiwanese produced melodramas that Brigitte Lin, who stars in the film, we love was her. in a million of. It was how she got famous in Hong Kong. So uh, it takes place in a weird alien isolated desolate version of San Francisco in student housing. They're, they're sort of like a cosmopolitan uh, group of people. And she has a friend named Ivy who is completely fucking crazy, is like obsessed with her brother. For the first couple of reels, there's this like sort of weird, ambiguous, really beautifully shot, but like stilted melodrama love quadrangle plot going on, which culminates in... Ivy tragically passing away. And that was a delicate way to put it. Thank you. (laughs) She explodes in a car accident for no reason. And it's unclear (laughs) if she killed herself. Um, But her basically she's going fucking crazy because Charlie Chen has just broken up with her. And so uh, Brigitte Lin and the friends get her brother to come over from Hong Kong and try to calm her the fuck down because she's attempted suicide a couple of times. And so Brigitte Lin falls in love with her brother, yeah, and her asshole brother pays more attention to Brigitte Lin than Absolutely. he does to his sick sister. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, while they're sharing a beautiful night at a cabin together, he like starts talking some crazy shit about voices in his head and like wakes up in the middle of the night and is like, Ivy's dead. In some kind of weird transference, he then manifests a very similar weird compulsion to her, as her, rather. And it almost reminds me of like, disturbed twin movies where you're like wait which one's the sane one which one's the crazy one has the line between the two blurred and then he loses basically the end is he fucking loses it and there is indeed a love massacre but i feel like (laughs) describing the plots of a lot of these movies especially ones that are like arty and like crazy hong kong movies that have all that stuff it's impossible like it's a fool's errand because I mean, the meat is not in the plot. No, no, no. it's in the vibes. But but also the plot's crazy, like crazy shit's fucking going on. But like, it's the kind of thing that you need to get lost in it because the movie has this like dreamy weirdo quality up into the point when people start getting chopped up. Yeah. And then when that shit goes down, it's just like it, it beats you up more because you were just like lost in this like. Dreamy, weird movie melancholic with like, it's very sad like, a lot are of these like brothers and sisters are they trying to fuck each other do they have some weird childhood shit go like what's going on oh now she's dead now he's crazy and it's just like you're just like hanging out in a melodrama and then you're fucking not and then you take a turn into mass murder territory oh, yeah. and like and just like the finale with the 
blue sheets and the white sheets and it's just oh yeah his use of primary colors i think is the thing that most obviously made me think of art house movies like i i know that in your extremely thorough notes you mentioned that he himself said that he was influenced by people like godard and antonioni and a lot of critics have pointed that out but his use of primary colors it's like Godard's use of them in Puro Le Fou and Made in USA, but it's also entirely his own thing. For sure. And I think as a dumb guy, when I watch uh, like arty movies, when I can like be like, oh, I think the blue means like death. You know what I mean? Like, I like that. I like when I can actually figure it out. And the only other movies I can think that do that are um, Gate of Flesh uh, from Seishin Suzuki and uh, Zero Woman Red Handcuffs, oh. you know, where like I can tell when they like assign certain colors to certain emotions or, or things like that or certain characters and who like what they represent. And and this kind of does that, too. Uh, but just I don't know. I like that shit. You know, it's it's like, you know, kind of like basic bitch art house stuff. But like it it. But he or makes it feel like it's not basic bitch. Yeah, I, I really like it. I, th I think that very striking visual composition is part of the reason why the film has been getting a lot more popular in the past couple of years and yeah. why someone went through the trouble of finding a fucking laser disc and ripping it because yeah, I, it's it's incredibly like shareable. Like every screenshot of the movie makes you want to sit down and watch it basically immediately. It's so like you could turn every screenshot into a poster or like a cover design. And before I forget, if you are looking for the Laserdisc version and you go on Letterboxd, I think the top Letterboxd review, has a link the to person has a link, link to it. Yeah. So yeah, thank I read, you to that person. Uh, I think it was, I don't know who it was exactly that like uploaded their Laserdisc, but in the description for it, they were like, I spent like $560 on this fucking Laserdisc. Yeah, thank disc. you for just your so service. I can, just so I can <laughs> upload it. Like, so I... Totally unnecessary context, but like that VHS rip was the only extant copy for a super long time. However, there was a Chinese video on YouTube that had 20 minutes of the Laserdisc version just up there. And it's so obviously not fucked up, like color grading wise, yeah. that I went insane trying to find a fucking copy of it for like years. So I was like super fucking happy when I stumbled upon yeah, the thanks, work. Yeah, thank you to that hero. I know. All right. Um, Moving on to another film from Mr. Patrick Tam. Which is sort of at the opposite end of the it genre spectrum in a weird is. way. You know, from like, because I think the way that Love Massacre handles the love part of it is like a little rough and weird. It's a it's little, just, it's like a bizarro soap opera, has like yeah. a little touch of something like Twin Peaks. Yeah, there is an unreality going on with it that you kind of can't really identify with any of the characters, they're kind of kept at a distance, which is not a, a slight or a strike against it. it. It just makes it all the more interesting. Whereas a movie like My Heart is That Eternal Rose with just a beautiful cast of people that will make you cry, it almost does the opposite. Like, it's so easy to... I mean, even though we've probably never been in situations where we've been, like, you know, trafficked and had our dad fucking kill a <laughs> cop. And like, I mean, we've never been in these, like, crazy situations. But 
the way that the characters interact and talk to each other and fall in love with each other. Going way back to Bobby's point earlier when you asked, like, what's the best starting point? I think because Love Massacre does have that kind of alienation, that distance from the characters, my heart is that Eternal Rose, you immediately fall in love with the characters. And so I, I think that is maybe what makes it feel more accessible because like even though there is that unreality and the melodrama it's like the performances are a lot more naturalistic and i heard something rose and i think like despite the script like being almost like godfrey ho tier in terms of like the actual developments going on the performances are just so strong and the way everything is filmed and so beautiful together it just i could look at little tony long wiggle his fucking eyebrows for Oh, two and a half oh, yeah. hours. And so it's yeah. It's He's another so it's another so love triangle movie, basically about Joey Wong's character, whose dad has left the triad. He's opened this beachside bar. They're having a nice life, but then through an act of a, a, attempted goodwill, he gets kind of sucked back in. And yeah, yeah, he gets sucked back in the triad yeah. life. It turns his life upside down. A daughter gets sold into like being this gang lord's sex slave. And, and the, the villains in this are as well cast as the heroes. You've got fucking Wyman Chan and Gordon Liu looking so scary and sinister and it just... I think what I loved so much about My Heart is That Eternal Rose as as someone who's a huge fan of heroic bloodshed movies, one of the things that I love about heroic bloodshed movies is like, I'm sorry, ladies, no offense to you both, but it's... Dudes rock. They're, they're dudes movies, okay? Like, you'll never fucking understand them. It's about brotherhood. No offense. I'll, I'd be happy to explain it to you. I'd be happy to tell you all about it, but like... Yes, but, please but, mansplain but, it to but, us. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, and I, and I love them for that, but this movie, perfect heroic bloodshed film... But it's not at all about brotherhood. It's about chivalry. Humanity. Yeah. Well, it's about like love. Well, it it is. But I think something that it does so well is the idea of chivalry. This idea that much like the triad movies where brotherhood is the most important thing, this movie does such a great job of blending that with romance and this concept of romantic chivalry like just because you fall in love with a person doesn't mean you should run away with them it's it's or that you have any ownership over them right but it's, it's about like having a specific code of just behavior and you're applying it to this love triangle where like they're all trying to be honorable and do the right thing and they just are yeah, in it's, a it's, bad place because they they got involved with this triad. Yeah, their unwillingness to betray either each other or people in their life that are important yes. leads to their horrible demise. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the, 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 it's a classic Shakespearean tragedy. I mean, and, and that's the heart of all heroic bloodshed films. But this one just feels so unique. I think it manages to evoke the really rich emotional content of something like a woo film centered on the brotherhood between hot male action guys and and there are hot male action guys yeah i mean yo people do get shot in this movie and it is lit it's like a combination of like an in the mood for love like unrequited thing with yeah like hard-boiled or like the killer it's fucking awesome gordon Liu, in the first half of the movie wears this fucking wig and it's like 
they Fa- don't a famously bald yeah. Gordon Liu. A famously beautiful like the man is yeah. is any, beautiful when he's bald, but when he puts a wig on, yes. it's like this is just wrong. Any so this movie is against I've nature. Ever seen him with hair? <laughs> what was the one we watched? It was called Passionate Killing in the Dream. And in this film, this Cat Three movie, he's got a full head of hair, and I'm like, dude, you look like shit. Well, so it the wig looks awful, but yeah. the way the movie addresses it is halfway through when oh, he's also like trying to put the moves on Joey Wong in a rapey, evil gangster henchman way. She pushes him off, and his wig gets moved. And I at first assumed, like, oh, are they just going to, like, quick edit this out? No, but yeah, it's part he, of the character. You see him adjust his wig, and then in the next scene, when he decides, like, okay, she's rejected me. I don't have to be nice yeah, anymore. He takes his fucking wig off, and it's like his real personality yo, comes yo, out. Exactly. It's so and, good. And you got Gordon Liu sitting down in a fucking chair, eating a banana, just... <laughs> fanning himself with his wig in the other hand. It's such a Cat 3 moment. It really is. And and the thing is, though, is that, like, this is a ridiculous image, Gordon Liu, you know. But it's menacing. 36 chambers, fanning himself with a wig, eating a banana. It's scary. Like, he is scary in this scene because he looks like he's about to fucking strike. And And he is. He is. (laughs) I mean, all of the the performances in this movie... I mean, everyone is just, I mean, it's his consummate professionals all the way down. And and to see young Tony Lung, little Tony as, as he's known, just giving the most heartbreaking performance of just like kind of a cuckold man. But he's, he looks like such a little baby, like he looks so yeah. young that it's, you're just like, oh, little Tony. <laughs> I know that feeling of like, Doing right by the person that you love who is in love with someone else and like almost helping their relationship as best you can to your own like painful detriment just because you love them. You want them to be happy. You got to you got to help them. It's just such a it's just such a heartbreaking movie. And it's so fucking good. The funniest thing about it is like the emotional core of the film the relationships between the protagonists and their families and the people that they refuse to abandon is so like resonant and powerful and then like in the process of doing research for this episode there is an interview between patrick tam and some guy and this is like very casually nested in some fucking blog article about mario bava which is incredible paraphrasing he's like oh yeah my heart is on children rose yeah we made that movie look really good because the script was dog shit and it's like (laughs) I was crying the whole time, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is the testament of a good filmmaker is is they can have a dog shit script, but they know what they're doing. They know how to get emotion out of you with very little. But everyone is uh, it's just it's everyone's so, so it's very three dimensional. And, and, and yeah. that's kind of why like I I kind of poo-poo a little bit whenever we start doing plot synopsis because it's like, it doesn't matter what the fucking movie's movie's about. about. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like, how do they evoke the emotion? How do they convey these heady themes in a little move? You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's just so impressive. I guess to me, the plot elements do matter because we're talking about him as a genre filmmaker and the ways in which he's doing something different with genre. So it's like, you know, taking these standard melodrama elements and these standard heroic bloodshed elements and just like obviously having a script that he hated and still turning it into this like amazing, unexpected 
masterpiece that really fits between genre film, mainstream melodrama, and art house in such an interesting way. Last week, the three of us went to Sundays on Fire at the Nighthawk uh, movie theater, and we saw... The Mission. Thank you. I'm out to lunch. We saw Johnny Toe's film The Mission, and in the intro... Grady was saying that they didn't really have a script. They just kind of had an idea of what they were going to shoot that day. And and that's another example of like, it doesn't matter. Like what happens in the movie, it's just so focused on character and performance and, and vibes. And, and it's, it's just all the better for it. That's something really good to bring up because part of Tam's preoccupation, where, part of the thing that makes him so interesting is his preoccupation with scripts and, and trying to develop something that he felt is like, a strong character-based work. This is part of the reason why Love Massacre is unique. As you guys may know, it was super common to not shoot with sound on location for these yeah. films. They would be dubbed in post. And so it, it was fairly standard to produce a movie without a completed script. Like you could just have your actor saying whatever, or saying random numbers and just fucking do ADR. Which is insane to me. Um, so that's one of the things that's interesting going back to Love Massacre is it won an award at the, I think it was either the year before the Hong Kong Film Awards were created. So I think it's a golden horse from Taiwan, but it, it won an award for the sound design because it was shot with sound on location, which was pretty apparent at that time, especially with something fucking produced in the US. And so, yeah, I think that like his preoccupation with like advancing the medium or holding himself to a certain standard is something that is apparent throughout all of his films and something that makes them really exciting. It's also so fascinating to me that you would have somebody like him who made these incredible films throughout the 80s as a director and then kind of took a little bit of a step back and would go on and edit things like Ashes of Time and edit Johnny Toe's Election and Days of Being Wild. Yes, Throw and one of, and my favorite Wong Kar Wai film. Yeah, if you watch My Heart Is at Eternal Rose and Days of Being Wild back to back, there are definitely some similarities. Yeah, I don't mean to undercut Wong Kar Wai because I think he is a, a wonderful filmmaker. The bastard Wong Kar Wai. Bo- Bobby means to undercut yeah, no, Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> I. Mean, always assumed that he was kind of just like this auteur guy who came out of nowhere and changed Hong Kong cinema. Who came out of Haunted Cop Shop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he came out of fucking that shit. But seeing these Patrick Tam movies, it's just like, oh. He didn't come from out of nowhere. Like, this is it. Like, this is the stuff that, like, Wong Kar Wai later just, like, like, redeveloped and, like, focused his efforts on, like, but less so in genre spaces you know like even ashes of time to me doesn't really feel like a wuja no it doesn't like i mean if you want that kind of movie watch burning paradise like ashes of time is a one car wine movie first and foremost and then it has this like big you know spectacly things going on or even like uh my one of my other favorites as tears go by which that's just good it's like sort of a triad movie at moments, but it's really a melodrama. I mean, Best use of I, Take I, My I, Breath oh, Away. Oh, oh, That's yeah. a great cover. Oh my God. Sandy Lamb. But I mean, I I love Wong Kar Wai, but I feel like now that I know Patrick Tam... There's more than meets the eye yes, to the Hong the, Kong A, a little bit of the, <laughs> the wind in my sails for that guy has kind of come out, you know? There's only three legs on the chair now. And one of those legs is Christopher Doyle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So what the fuck? So there's this white dude. This Is he American? 
Mer no. Australian or uh, he's British? Australian, yes, correct. Australian. I yeah, believe. they're all fucking uh, all Australians there. I'm the Christopher Doyle knower if you want a brief synopsis. Yeah, he, so like how did he how did he get into these movies? Because like he's clearly like when I thought that My Heart is at Eternal Rose looked like a Wong Kar Wai movie, and then Sam was like, oh, yeah, it's because it was shot, shot by Christopher Doyle. It looks like, like a Christopher Doyle yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so he was just a random dude who was kind of just going around to wherever he could fucking find a job. So he did random shit like working as a stevedore or whatever the fuck English oh, teacher. I he, thought you said a matador, and I was uh, like, no, dude, no, no, no. fucking adds a bull. He got to start as the only Australian bullfighter. <laughs> He might have other acting roles, but he plays a very funny alternate version of himself where he never got famous for working on good-ass movies in Comrades Almost a Love Story, where he's just a fucking alcoholic English teacher. Very funny. But no, um, he basically he found his way into Taiwan in the early 80s and was shooting like TV documentaries. And I think his first film credit was on the Edward Yang film... That Day at the Beach, mm-hmm. which is a Sylvia Chang melodrama vehicle. Not really, it's fucking great, but he had only ever shot on 16 before, and he was like a friend of Ed Yang just from being in the same milieu or whatever. And uh, when Mr. Yang wanted to hire him, uh, it wound up causing like a studio-wide strike because the people that were in the production company were like, we have... 15 fucking Taiwanese cinematographers we can use for this or whatever. And it got to the point where Sylvia Chang, because she was the niece of the person who owned the studio, had to like negotiate a thing where there would have, there would be a, um, a company cinematographer that got a co-producing credit. And the way Christopher Doyle describes it was, he was just a guy who went fishing every day. Good for Um, him. So that was like his (laughs) breakout into working theatrically. And then from there he just shows up in a, some random Hong Kong movies and I think a French production in the mid '80s until he started working a ton with um, Patrick Tam, and then on to Wong Kar Wai, who didn't—they didn't work on the, any of the same Tam films. Uh, Wong Kar Wai wrote or has a writing credit on *Final Victory*, whereas Christopher Doyle, his first credit with him is um, *Burning Snow* in 1988, and then *My Heart Is at a Tunnel Rose* in 1989. Which. That's so interesting that that's how he got started because not to jump back to Godard briefly, but his first longtime cinematographer was this guy named Raul Coutard who started off, I think he learned how to shoot as a war journalist and started off in documentaries. And I do think one of the really important ways that a lot of new wave filmmakers, regardless of which new wave they're from, are able to innovate is they get these cinematographers and these set decorators and these art designers from outside of the industry. So they make things that look fundamentally different. I was thinking about Batgirl that whole time. Pardon yeah, me. sorry. The cat just <laughs> walked in the room. Anything um, else that you... Oh, wow, that's cute. Oh, here comes Batgirl. Yeah. Uh, no, just... um. Uh, I think Patrick Tam is really fucking cool. I think that learning about him is a great way to learn more about some of his contemporaries that are a little bit more famous internationally and also some of the developments in Hong Kong culture that precipitated the rich, nasty genre cinema that we came to enjoy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's truly it. To answer my my very first question at the at this top of the show. Why which should is, you care? Why do I like this and not other new waves? Like, usually when I, like, see a Czech new wave movie or, you know, Hungarian new wave, it's the French new wave especially. When I watch anything that has this fucking word wave attached to it, I don't like it. Even Japanese new wave. Don't fucking like it. 
And that's insane. Well, it's just uh, I'm telling you how I feel. But I think the reason why this one I do like is because they know how to satisfy me as a dumb person. Like they're not trying to be obscure they're still on producing purpose. Commercial yeah. cinema yes, they're, for they're, mass they're, consumption. Yes, they are. They're making movies for dumb poor people, and but they're not talking down to those dumb poor people which is what you know normal movies do they're they're coming from this place where they're trying to get something across that is bigger but they're doing it in a way that's accessible which to me i think is so so important you know to to be able to get across a very important message or to have someone think about you know love gender class Crime. Colonialism, you know, yeah, yeah, crime and and trauma. And to have those things in a package that you can digest as a regular ass person. And in a language you can understand. And that and but that makes you think and makes you smarter and all the better for having seen it. And not just, you know, something that you project on the wall at fucking MoMA. I mean, I would I love watch that. Love Massacre projected on the wall. That'd be kind of lit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. <laughs> they also you guys have, have screens, contacts? so yeah. it doesn't have to be projected on a wall. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, do you guys get any shout outs or anything? Yes. Yeah, so, our dear friend Phil Jablon, who some of you know because he has a Thai movie poster account on Instagram where we are now all addicted to buying Thai movie posters, uh, he has. A new book out. His first book is all about documenting abandoned theaters in Thailand. And this is such an amazing follow-up. It's basically the history of Thai movie posters. And if you can't buy a million posters, you should buy this book because you can see so, so many of them in there in beautiful scans. Also with a lot of history about who these artists are. And because Phil spent so much time in Thailand, he speaks the language... I think he has a real understanding of that industry and such a reverence and love for it that really comes out in the book. Yeah, The Amazing Movie Posters of Thailand by Phil Jablon, who uh, came on the show last year at some point. He's great. The book is great. It's it's a fucking massive, you know... Tome. It's a tome. <laughs> and it's just... You know, Sam reads all the words and tells me about them. I look at the pictures, and boy, they're fucking nice to look at. Oh, man. Yeah, but buy, buy Phil's book. What about you, Bobby? You got anything to, to promote? What's going on in Bobby land? Um, I mean, not particularly. I, If it works for you guys, I would love to post the notes that I took in the show notes or whatever. If yeah. You throw a link oh, up. yeah. Um, Hell yeah. If you want, I'll combine a couple of my Spotify playlists and get a bunch of Cantonese language covers. Yeah. Oh, that, would, that would be yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, yes. Spotify playlist. Sure. All um, right, the cat is literally rubbing on your mic yeah, right, right now. I'm, I'm now kissing Batgirl, and Hey Fune by Beyond is playing for the seventh time in this episode, and I'm looking back at Sam and Charles and I'm shrugging, and there's a freeze frame, and I'm dissolving into the ocean. And lots of fake slow-mo. The end. Hey, who